Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that it is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Lauren. Good morning. Um, the great thing about being in charge is that um, you can tell the people who work with you, for you, however you want to put that, uh, to do things that you don't want to do. And I tried really hard. I tried my hardest this week to not have to preach this passage. Lauren looked at me on the stage. What in the world am I, pre- what am I, what am I reading? What does that mean? I have no idea. And on Monday, I didn't either. But hopefully, uh, we can figure these, these things out together. This is a very, very uh, a strange passage with weird, what in the world is Paul saying? And because it's spring break, as hard as I tried, I was not able to find enough people who were in town who could fill all the positions. And I get paid to be here. Uh, so, you got me this morning. So, let's look at this together, can we? Um, we are continuing in this discussion on the resurrection from Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the 15th chapter. Now, if you're here, let me say up front, and you're not a Christian, or you're new to church, or whatever it might be, as crazy as it might sound, I need to say, Christians believe that the man Jesus of Nazareth was, Nazareth was God in the flesh, that he died upon a Roman cross... And then on the third day, he was raised from the dead by God's creative power, and he's alive. That's, man, that got a, like, not just a, that was like a, woo, right? That was pretty cool. 
right? And it should be. That's exactly how we should respond. That's what we celebrate at Easter. So come next week and celebrate with us. But see, the resurrection of Jesus is central to Christian theology. Okay, Paul has talked in this passage, and this is our third week here, about two weeks ago we talked about the necessity of the resurrection, that there is no Christianity without the resurrection, that if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins and our faith is useless. If the resurrection is a myth or just a story then, 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 and not historical fact, then all of this that we're doing this morning is completely for nothing. And then in verse 20, Paul transitioned into a discussion about the hope of the resurrection. That He said that because Jesus was raised from the dead, he is now in heaven putting his enemies under his foot, and therefore we need not worry or fear or be anxious or afraid despite the obstacles we might be up against because Jesus wins. And we're tied to him, and therefore we ultimately win also. Okay, all that makes sense. But here in verse 35, Paul transitions again. If you look there, he anticipates two questions. He says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? And this marks a new section. So now Paul's going to take up the mechanics of the resurrection, the how. In other words, what exactly happened to Jesus when he was raised? How does that help us understand what will happen to us and what we can expect when we talk about our own resurrection? So we're dealing with some more of the practical dynamics or mechanics of this Christian doctrine of the resurrection, okay? In order to do that, because this passage is hard, and I couldn't really just go verse by verse because it would be, you know, it's confusing and and it's just really difficult. So we're just going to do it under these four headings. We're going to talk this morning about all of these things in this passage. There's a pattern here. There's a promise here. There's a call to a practice here, and then there is the assurance of a power. Now, they all match, right? So I am in full-blown preacher mode this morning because I got all the points start with the same letter. That's awesome when that happens, right? So there's pattern, promise, practice, power, okay? All four of those things from this passage, let's just walk through it together, and hopefully we can make sense of this, okay? First, the pattern, okay? This is not, not in the specific so much as just the general theme of the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is intentionally patterning this chapter in his letter to the Corinthians after Genesis 1 through 3, which is the account of creation at the beginning of the Bible. Now, let me give you just a little bit of the data. If you look at verse 47, he uses Adam as an illustration, which is a direct reference to the creation story. In verse 27, he quotes Psalm 8, verse 7, which is an account of also of the creation narrative. But here in these verses, the language of 39 through 40, humans and animals and birds and fish and heavenly bodies and et cetera, et cetera. All of these things echo the language of Genesis 1. So it seems very clear. Paul means for us to read 1 Corinthians 15 with Genesis 1 through 3 in mind. And see, Genesis 1 through 3 is the account of creation at the beginning of the world, at the foundation of the earth. 1 Corinthians 15 is the account of God's new creation. Genesis 1 through 3 is the story of how God's good creation was ruined and destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15 is the story of how it is being healed and remade by Jesus Christ through his resurrection from the dead. Genesis 1 through 3 tell us how sin entered the world and through sin death. 1 Corinthians 15 tell us how death has been dealt the death blow and how life and God's salvation are now marching triumphantly towards the end of the ages when death will finally be no more, when as the prophet Isaiah says, when it will be swallowed up in victory and everything sad will come untrue and God himself will wipe away the tears from our faces. It's just beautiful language. 
Genesis 1 through 3 is the beginning of the story. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of Jesus is the climax. So Paul's intentionally linking the two together to help us see that the Bible is telling a story. There's a story. There's a pattern. Now, you guys know that I'm a little bit of a you know, book and movie nut. And what I want to say, every one of the stories that we love, whether we go to the movie theater to see them or we read them in books, every single story that's a great story follows a similar narrative structure. There's a formula. There's a pattern. Okay? So a romantic comedy, for example. I'm not going to give any specifics because every time I talk about the romantic comedies I watch, I get mocked for three weeks. So no specifics. Let's just work with that category in general. A romantic comedy goes something like this, doesn't it? There's a basic plot line. A boy meets, boy and girl meet. They fall in love. Then, so it's all great. Then there is some kind of threat that's introduced, right? Either uh, some, some obstacle of, of some kind. Either it's an ex-girlfriend or the boy makes some stupid decision. And I started to think about it usually. And this is, this is like reverse, um, you know, sexual dis- discrimination. It's usually the man who, blows, who messes it up, isn't it, in the movies, right? It's never the woman, hardly ever. And yet something happens, they break up, he breaks her heart, typically, or sometimes vice versa, the relationship ends, okay? This goes on for a while, and then at the very end, in some unexpected way, something happens, they kiss and make up, and that's it, right? That's the formula, and it's always the same. It's the same formula, it's the same movie, it's the same story. In fact, if you go to the movie theater expecting to see a romantic comedy and it doesn't, Follow that narrative arc, you stomp out, you get mad, you ask for your money back. Right? Because it's what we've come to expect. But guys, okay, just let me talk to you for a minute. Because it's not just true of romantic comedies. It's true of action-adventure movies as well. There's a standard narrative structure. Same thing, okay? So The Hobbit, for example, because it's one of my favorites. And it, and it just came out not, not long ago. If you saw the movie, you're better read the book. Okay, it begins with the memory of Orin and his dwarf companions, Right? of days of wealth and happiness and flourishing. But then the enemy comes, Smog, the dragon, who killed their ancestors and stole their home and their treasure. And then, of course, the rest of the story is their adventure to overcome the enemy and to recover what had been lost. So see, every one of these stories has this similar pattern, this similar narrative arc. The great stories begin with once upon a time, don't they? The Bible's way of saying it is, in the beginning. There's always a paradise. There's, there's, there's some beautiful state of being or place. And into this paradise comes an evil, an enemy that threatens to destroy things. And then the rest of the story is the battle or the adventure. You know, the quest that the man must go on to reclaim his love's heart. Right? The battle or the adventure that finally resolves into the happily ever after. And the reason all the great stories follow the same narrative Ark, and this I hope will blow some of your minds, is because they're all patterned after the one true story. The story the Bible's telling. And the story the Bible tells, we could use categories like this to, to explain it. I would use the categories of creation, fall, redemption. This is really the narrative arc of every story in the story of the Bible. Creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good and beautiful, and he made a garden, and it was paradise. And into the garden, he put man and woman to work and eat and make love. Doesn't that sound like a good place? Right? Hello, you with me? 
Sounds good to me. I mean, you know. Fall. Fall. There came into this paradise a great evil, an enemy. See? The threat. The Bible calls him Satan, and he seduced, this is the way the story goes, he seduced the man and the woman into rebelling against God. The results were devastating. Instead of life, there came death. Instead of joy, now sadness. And in many ways, this is the world we know, isn't it? A world full of injustice and violence and greed and corruption and selfishness. A world that's been ruined by sin. Don't forget recreation. That God was not content to leave us in our sin and misery. He went to battle against the enemy. This is what's so neat. Think about it. God himself went on an adventure. The way the heroes in the stories always do. He himself came into the world in Jesus Christ to win the decisive victory. That's what Paul's writing about here in 1 Corinthians 15. That in the resurrection of Jesus, God is recreating the world. He is taking what is broken and he is putting it back together. He is healing it. And now by the Spirit, he is remaking the world into the paradise it once was. And John could have easily finished the book of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, if you're familiar with it. At the very end, he could have easily finished the book, and it would have been very fitting with the words, and they all lived happily ever after. So men, if you've wondered why, if you've ever wondered why your wives can go see the same cheesy love story over and over again, just different characters, right? And be honest with me when I say this, or, or why you can watch Braveheart a hundred times and still get choked up in the end and don't act like you don't, right? If you wonder why that is, it's because there's something powerful in the stories we watch and we read that draw us in and put us in touch with reality, which is a story itself. Does that make sense? So there's a pattern. Okay? That's the first thing. These verses teach us there's a pattern. There's a narrative arc to reality in human history that our lives are a part of, and the resurrection of Jesus is the turning point in the story. So just one more illustration. If you've ever seen The Matrix, right? It's one of my, I like that movie. Two and three weren't so good, but number one was really great. Um, if you've ever seen the movie, the, the, the entire movie, the good guys spend, spend the whole movie running from the bad guys, right? That's basically, they run from the bad guys. That's basically what they do. Until the end, and at the very end, they catch up to Neo, who's the Christ figure in the story. They shoot and they kill him, and for a brief moment, it looks as if evil has won. And then, his heart begins to beat faintly on the heart monitor, and literally, I can't make this up, people. He is resurrected from the dead. But here's what happens. From that moment on, the moment he is raised from the dead, the good guys no longer run from the bad guys. Now the bad guys begin to run from the good guys. And that's what Paul's saying. That the resurrection of Jesus is God's recreative act, that we are no longer on the run from evil. Evil is now on the run from Jesus and his people. Because in Jesus, God's done something decisive. So there's, there's a pattern. But secondly, there's a seed. This, these verses also, I mean, there's a, there's a promise. It's the seed, okay? So I want to see the second thing here. And it's right here in verse 36. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Okay, Paul's using a gardening metaphor to explain how the resurrection works. So if you have a seed... 
that seed can't become a plant until you put it in the ground and it dies. It has to die first and then it comes to life. So here's what Paul means. He's trying to tell us that our lives are not meaningless, that we're all on a journey. We're in a story. We're headed somewhere, and that somewhere is towards death. But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, death is not the end. The promise is that death leads to life. There's death, but then on the other side of death, resurrection. And Jesus is rising up from the dead is the promise that when we die, if our faith is in him, and if we are in him, then we will rise up too. But, but how? How does that work? And here's where Paul begins to get into the mechanics of the resurrection. Verse 37, look what he says. He's trying to help us see exactly what happens in this whole transition. Okay, so he, the, uh, he, here, here's the basic, the basic argument Paul's making. Verse 37, he says, The body that we have now is not the body that is to be. The body we have is a bare kernel, he says, a seed. In other words, just a faint representation uh, of what it will one day be. And the life that we now live, the joy and the fun that we now enjoy and we experience is but a foretaste of the life that is to be. It's like sneaking, and I'm sure you've never done this. This doesn't happen at our family gatherings, but maybe at yours. It's like sneaking into the kitchen on Thanksgiving before the meal to get a little piece of the turkey. Right? And so you just think, think about an acorn... And an oak tree. You look at an acorn, and it's hard to imagine you hold a tiny little acorn in your hand. It's hard to imagine that that little thing could ever grow into the 150-year-old tree that's in my front yard that is just massive. But that's exactly what happens. And he's using that as an analogy to tell us that the body that we have now is not the body that is to be. In 39 through 41, which is really confusing and strange, is really just an extended argument that there are different kinds of bodies. There are human bodies with legs and arms and five fingers and five toes, hopefully, right? And bird bodies with feathers and beaks and wings, and fish bodies with fins and scales and gills, and heavenly bodies and earthly bodies and so on. All different kinds of bodies with all different kinds of glory or beauty or significance. And all of that is there to, to, to um, argue that the body that we now have is not the body that is to be, that we will, and here's Paul's way of saying it, we will be changed verse 51. The body that we have after we are raised from the dead will be different than the one we now have. Look down at verses 51 and 52. Behold, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That's what Paul's saying. Okay, but so what? What's the practical significance of this for my life, you might ask? And here's the way I would put it to you. If you're a Christian, what Paul is saying is that death does not signal defeat. It's the turning point in the battle. Because death is not the end of the story. There's death and then resurrection. So see, the promise is that life doesn't come to an end in death. No, it's the opposite. The promise is that death leads to life. There's death, but then resurrection. And the resurrection is the happily ever after. Life on the other side of death and resurrection is the happily ever after, not life on this side. Look down at verse 50, how Paul puts it. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and that kingdom of God there is what we've been talking about. It's God's renewal project, the healed creation, the healed human community, healed relationships, even healed physical bodies, the happily ever after. But not until death and resurrection. Now, I have little kids and little girls, so don't judge me when I use Beauty and the Beast as an illustration. 
Okay? Can we just agree? Thank you. Tony, Tony Ellswick's back there like, I got you, man. He's got four. If you know the story, if you've seen the movie, you know that at the very end of the movie, Beast dies defending Belle, and then what happens? Surprise, there's a resurrection. There's a change. There's a transformation. Beast gets a new body. He is changed from this ugly, scary creature into the handsome prince. And then, you know, as only Disney can do, little magical sparkles start falling from the sky, and everything that is ugly is made beautiful. And everything that was dirty is cleansed. And the castle that was in disrepair looks brand new. And everything gets changed, gets transformed. And it's a perfect illustration of the promise of the resurrection that we will be changed, that our bodies, but not only our bodies, the entire cosmos will be made new. Isn't that amazing? And if you want to know the specifics, Paul lists them there in the contrast he he makes in verse 42. He says, we are now perishable, we will be raised imperishable. And that perishable means decaying or disintegrating. The bodies that we have eventually wear out. I hate to break it to you, right? We are all literally falling apart. But the resurrection body is imperishable, Paul says. It will literally last forever, longer than even a McDonald's cheeseburger, right? And those things last a long time. Second, there is now dishonor. But when we are raised, it will be glory. Then this is really about status. He's saying, now our lives may seem small and insignificant, but remember what Paul's already taught us. We're destined to sit on the throne of the universe and judge even the angels. We're destined for glory. Now we're weak, he says. We'll be raised in power. And this has to do with capability. That you know, What kind of capability? I don't know. Maybe we'll be able to fly and walk through walls. I mean, who knows? I, I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us the specifics, but it says that there's a capability that our bodies will enjoy on that day that, that we no longer have. I believe that I will be able to do 50 burpees without throwing up. That's, my, that's what I believe. That will be true of my heavenly body. But what other capabilities I can't be sure of? And finally, the body we now have is a natural body but it will be raised as a spiritual one. And I'm going to say more about that in just a second, but we need to move on. Let me apply this before I move on to the next point. And what I want to say is, and I think about, I, I think about my three aging grandparents. Um, I think about Dave Lemons, who, John, I don't know if I missed it, but Dave Lemons passed away this past week, if you didn't know that. Uh, the man that we received in membership a few weeks ago up here. Uh, and I just think about people who, whose physical body is literally failing them. And if you're sick, if you're battling cancer or just old age or whatever it might be, there is a promise. And this scripture would tell you, hope in heaven. Okay? Hope in heaven. So these verses contain a promise, a pattern and a promise. But third, they also lead us to a practice to a way of life, a way of living in the present in light of the future. And here's where we have to fight for balance, okay? And I, I'm going to try, this is, this is the hard part, and I won't be in it long, and then we'll be done. But here's where we have to fight for balance, and where Paul helps us to be balanced, I think. Because in one sense, the body we have after the resurrection will be different than the one we now have. That's verses 36 through 44. However, at the same time, it is a resurrection body. So verse 44, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So if you wanted to sum up everything I'm trying to say this morning in one sentence, this is what it would be. 
It would be this. The body we now have is not the body that is to be after the resurrection. However, it is a body. Right? It will be a body. The body we now have is not the body we will one day possess, but that body will be a body. And that's important because if we're going to practice Christianity rightly, we have to understand what Paul means by this last contrast between the natural and the spiritual. Verse 44. Because our thinking about these things in our culture has been much more influenced by Greek philosophy than by the Scripture. We think like Greeks, not like Hebrews. And that can get us in a lot of trouble. Uh, N.T. Wright, who is a scholar and a pastor in England, comments on this passage, and he warns us that we have to avoid the ugly ditch of Platonism when it comes to this distinction between natural and spiritual. And I know you didn't realize you were going to get a philosophy lesson this morning. But just a brief one. What he means is that we are apt to read those categories as meaning physical and non-physical. And to assume that the physical is inferior to the non-physical or the spiritual. That's Platonism. Plato was a Greek philosopher and he believed that the physical material world was not the real world. But just the image or the copy of the invisible immaterial spiritual world. Which meant that the material world was far less important than the spiritual world out there. Now, N.T. Wright's trying to alert us to a tendency, even in the way we translate these verses, okay, to think that when Paul says natural and spiritual, he means physical and non-physical, but that is not what Paul's doing. Paul is not saying that while we're on earth, we have a body, but then when we're resurrected, we leave our bodies behind and we become a spirit. He says there's a natural body and a spiritual body, but they're both bodies. Those adjectives are, are, do not describe the substance of the bodies, but their quality. And let me explain it like this. In Genesis, we're told that God breathed the breath of life into Adam and he became a living soul. That's the natural body that Paul describes, the ordinary level of human existence. But in John 20, this is an amazing, amazing story. Jesus gathers his disciples together after his resurrection and he breathes on them the way God breathed on Adam in Genesis But this time it is not the breath of life. It is the breath of the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And that's the spiritual body. Life animated and controlled by God's Holy Spirit. So let me apply uh, this a little bit more broadly, okay? Paul's arguing for a bodily resurrection. And in doing so, he's affirming the physical material world as something that is good and not inferior to the spiritual, contrary to Plato and to most of Western thinking. Here's what this means. We have to change our idea about heaven. Christians talk about heaven, and I think the, the, what we, at least the impression we give off is something uh, to, to people who are not familiar with, with the, the Bible or with Christianity in general. The, the impression I think we sometimes give off is that when we talk about heaven, we mean that we float off into heaven when we die, that we... We, you know, we somehow become a sparkly soul that leaves our bodies around to zoom around the galaxy or something like that. But see, on Easter, we celebrate an empty tomb. In other words, if you have ever thought of it this way, Jesus took his body with him. And we will too. And so the popular evangelical doctrine that God will come in the end times to rescue us from the evil, corrupt world and to take us up into heaven to be with him, that is Platonism, not biblical Christianity. Because in Revelation 21 and 22, when John talks about the new heavens and the new earth, did you hear that? The new heavens and the new earth. 
He said he saw the heavenly city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God to the earth. So biblically, it is not that one day God will rescue us from the material world to take us up into the spiritual world of heaven. It's the opposite. The hope and the teaching of the Bible is that God is working to bring the reality of heaven down into the material world to transform it by his spirit. That has major implications for the way we live our lives. Let me just mention two really quick. And they're just two, I would make, I would make just two um, exhortations. Two exhortations, if that is true. The first is that we are called to be image bearers. That we have a mission then. That, we, that, that the goal can't see, when Christians talk about these things, a lot of times the way it sounds is that their goal is just to hold on until Jesus comes back to rescue them. But the goal can't be to leave earth and go to heaven. The goal, according to the scripture, has to be to see heaven come down and change the earth. Does that make sense? Because you're looking at me like... And I realize that we're flipping things upside down. And this is the language of being an image of God in verse 49. That's our job description. That, that Adam was God's image bearer and he was given the job of ruling over the creation in God's name. Jesus is the second Adam. And so the writer of Hebrews calls him the image of the invisible God. What Paul says, verse 49, when he says that we've been born in the image of the man of dust, who is Adam... He means that like Adam, we've failed in our duty to steward the earth and to use our power and resources to extend God's reign. We've lived for ourselves, not for God. We've lived selfishly, not in light of the mission God has given to all of us as those made in his image. But Paul goes on to say that for the Christian, the spiritual body that we will bear one day is the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. And that means that like Jesus, we will, by the power of the Spirit, not just one day in the new heavens and the new earth, but even now in some sense, we will become through the Spirit what God meant for Adam to be. In other words, we will be people who begin to rule and steward the earth in righteousness and justice and the result of our stewardship over our city and over our earth will be peace and blessing and flourishing for the entire human community. And so be an image bearer. But here's where I'm really going to mess you up. And where this passage does, messes us up. But the second application is be an image bearer, but also be temperate. If I could get even more practical, we have to avoid the extremes of indulgence and asceticism. We have a mission, see, to bring heaven to earth. But we can't be indulgent, we can't be excessive, but we've got to be careful not to go too far and to fall into the error of asceticism, which is really just another form of Platonism that has gripped Western Christianity, that the spiritual is more important than the physical, and so we should deny ourselves physical pleasures for the sake of being spiritual. That the material world is evil and we should try to escape it. Rather, it is God's good creation that we should enjoy as much as we can given the pains and the heartaches of this life. So this is the reason why Christians sometimes have a hard time with C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien and why the writing of those men have had such an impact on my life personally. Both Lewis and Tolkien were questionable Christians. (laughs) And by that I mean that one of their favorite things to do is to go hang out at the pub with their friends and smoke pipes and drink beer. All right, right? I got an all right from the front. Right? And so the characters in their stories were very much like their creators. The hobbits in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, for example, exemplify this appreciation for the good things that God has created. 
Tolkien characterizes them as merry people who were big eaters and drinkers and who loved to laugh and tell stories and throw parties, and they were very fond of the pipeweed, right? And they're the heroes in the stories. The villains, the bad guys, are set in stark contrast. They're the people that, that there's no joy. They have no fun. They just want to, you know, they just want darkness and, and pain and suffering. And so there's a book I've been reading, and the author of the book puts it this way. He says, it may seem strange to many Christian readers, especially non-smoking, teetotaling evangelicals like myself, that the bad guy would be the one who refuses to smoke or dance. But Lewis and Tolkien understood that the ability and the willingness to accept and take joy in appropriate pleasures is a virtue, not a vice. (laughs) Thank you, Michael. See, Tolkien and Lewis are doing something very intentional. They're teaching us good theology, that enjoying the good things of God is not a vice. Self-indulgence is, gluttony is, excess is, but be careful. Be an image bearer. Give your whole life to the mission, but be temperate. Don't live as if this life is all there is. Right? Don't miss out on the opportunities to enjoy the good things of God now. Now, finally, and I've, I'm out of time. I've got to be done. We've seen the power, the promise, the practice. I mean, excuse me, the pattern, the promise, and the practice. But what about the power? How do you do this? How do you do this? And the answer is the man of heaven. See, the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And because Jesus is in heaven... He sends the Holy Spirit into the world and into our hearts. And that's why Paul calls him in verse 45, a life-giving spirit. And so here's what I want to say as we come to the communion table this morning. Just as Jesus breathed on his disciples in John 21 and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, he can breathe on you too and give life to your deadness. The power of the resurrection is not just power for the future, but also that the future life, the life of the Spirit, is pushing back into our lives now and changing us. So, where are you perishing? Is there some part of your life... You hold it in your hands and it's like a bag of expired crackers and you grab it and it just begins to crumble. If Jesus breathes his spirit on you, you can be made whole again. Where are you weak? Are you up against an obstacle that's too big for you to move in in your own strength? If you turn to Jesus in faith and you ask him to breathe on you, he can take your weakness and turn it into strength. Where are you just natural? In other words, you're going out on your own in your own strength. If Jesus breathes on you, You'll discover capabilities and resources at your disposal you never knew possible. But how? Don't miss the language of union for Christ. Look at verse 48. The argument Paul makes there is, as he is, so are we. And that's what we celebrate as we come to this table, that in faith we unite ourselves to Jesus Christ so that everything that Jesus has and is becomes ours. And that becomes the power to live the life of the resurrection. And so as we come to this table this morning, let's pray. Can we pray? Father, bless our time here in this meal together. Strengthen our hearts and comfort us against our failure and our fears and our discouragements and our unbelief. Come and make us new as we participate in your life, death, and resurrection by sharing in consuming and digesting your body broken and your bloodshed. Come and meet us at this place, at this table. Take our weakness, make it strength. Take our crumbling lives and make them whole again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Receive the promise of the benediction. 
uh, as it is the fuel for you to go and to live the life God has called you to. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.